One thing about cities is that you meet all sorts of people coming and going through cities. We're going to be looking this morning at an African man who was on his way back from Jerusalem, a great city. And he had gone there on a pilgrimage, and he had encountered unexpected things there. And we're going to find out uh, more about his story and about what God was doing. He is described in the passage we're about to read as an Ethiopian eunuch, um, a treasurer, senior official under an African queen in Nubia, which is basically it's, uh, uh, the Kushite kingdom directly south of Egypt, as far south as modern-day Khartoum. And this Nubian senior government official, he's visited Jerusalem, he's on his way home now, and as he's on his way home, the Spirit of Jesus intervenes very miraculously, first through an angel and then through even stranger things. And we are going to read the account of the first Gentile baptized, true Gentile, not a Samaritan, not a Gentile who had converted to Judaism and then comes to Jesus, but the account here of the father of the Gentile church, the first absolute non-Jew baptized into Christ and the way Jesus chose him very purposefully, and we're going to ask why. This is Acts chapter, six, or Acts chapter 8 in your pew Bible. We're on page 1705 if you want to look there, or it'll be on the wall. Uh, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. This is from the Acts of the Apostles. It's the, the earliest record, the earliest historical account of the events immediately after the resurrection of Jesus in the first century. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip is one of our first deacons, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone down to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then Philip ran up to the chariot and and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked him. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. 
And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. What do we see here? We see an account of truly odd intervention by the Spirit of Jesus. Philip is hanging around in Jerusalem, and an angel comes and tells him, go and and hang out on the highway heading south to Egypt. Just, Just hang out there. You'll figure it out. And so he goes, and he does that. Direct intervention. Jesus is wanting this to happen. This is guy's going to be the first, the first Gentile. He's chosen him, and so he goes. And, and then eventually this Ethiopian, really Nubian official is baptized. And then Philip is teleported away. It, I don't know. It looks weird to me. There's nothing like this. It's like, it's like Jesus was trying to go out of his way through his spirit to tell the Jewish church. At this point, it's all Jewish and a few half-Jewish Samaritans. And he's trying to tell them what's going to happen is not something that is by accident. It's not that Philip's going to just stumble across this eunuch and the eunuch's going to believe in Jesus and then you're going to have to get a study committee together to figure out whether you can change the book of church order to actually baptize an African who's not a Jewish Jew first. It's like, I am going out of my way to make sure you know this is me. Jesus is he's, he's, he's giving you his ID. This is really me. I'm legit. So, really weird. So, why this? Why would God do this? That's the question. In choosing a father for the Gentile church, the person who the churches should be named after, St. Eunuchs, um, Holy Eunuchs, Eunuch Presbyterian, uh, in choosing this father of the Gentile church, the first to be baptized, why, we're going to ask, why an African... And then secondly, why this African? And then thirdly, why this African at this particular moment? See, this message of Jesus, why an African? First question, this message of Jesus uh, reached Africa before it reached Europe. Uh, you know, there is a myth of, of Christian Europe, Christian America, and it's, it's absolutely a myth. I mean, if you want to understand where my people came from, 97% of them were from the British Isles, and, and their native religion was Druidism or some form of shamanism. You know, like, like Christi- Christianity went to Africa first. And by the year 43, just 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Apostle Mark is already leading the church in Egypt from Alexandria in North Africa. The church grew rapidly in Egypt and in Nubia and the Cushite kingdoms and black Africa further south throughout the first century. This is the beginning of a story. You know, later on you see the growth of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, one of the oldest denominations in the history of Christianity. And, and as Islamic armies marched across North Africa in the 7th and 8th centuries, the one island of Christianity was Ethiopia. As the Ethiopian Orthodox Church helped that culture stay strong against against invasion, against oppression, against outside power, something that would remain the case into the 20th century. See, the message of Jesus was in Africa before it ever reached Europe. And, and why an African? Jesus is saying, I plan for my church to be a multi-ethnic, 
multinational people from the very beginning. Jesus is being so clear by choosing a black African. You can't get more different from a first century Jew than a, than a Nubian. Because a Nubian isn't just, you know, we, in the U.S. we have these categories of black and white, but, but if you've ever seen a Nubian, you understand where the word black comes from. I mean, we're talking really, really, really dark. And, and Jews were, were olive-skinned. They were very, very different. Different facial features. There's no way this guy's just going to blend into a crowd. But from the very beginning, Jesus is saying, I strongly desire that racial barriers be crossed in and through my church. It is multi-ethnic from the beginning. It is multinational. Different cultures, different languages, different life experiences, different races, people of whole different perspectives and backgrounds. And that trajectory is something that has only continued uh, you know, the World Christian Trends points out now that there are more evangelical Protestants in Nepal than in Spain, while the historic William Carey Memorial Church in Leicester, England, from which the modern missions movement was launched, is now a Hindu temple. The church in India, the traditional home of Hinduism, is now sending out 41,000 Christian missionaries every year, and that's a 2,000-year-old denomination. Uh, Every week, 15,000 missionaries, most of them from Africa and Asia, are evangelizing communities in Great Britain. You see, this this notion of Christian Europe, it turns it on its head, and it was that way from the beginning because the first Gentile uh, believer, the first Gentile baptized, was not a European, was not even something that would have been close to a Jew, like an Arab or a Scythian. Uh, The first one, Jesus is saying, going out of his way, would be sub-Saharan black African. See, every religion, there's something interesting going on here, because every religion by its nature is culturally imperialistic. Uh, we see that, uh, you know, to truly read the Quran, you have to first learn Arabic, because any English language Quran is not a translation, but merely an interpretation. Uh, and while Islam is certainly spread beyond the Arabian Peninsula, it has carried aspects of Arab culture with it, and it has tended to, to Arabize the cultures uh, in which it brings Islam. Uh, religions are like that. They're, they're culturally imperialistic. Hinduism is in many ways wedded to Indian culture. Buddhism, the East Asian culture. Animism to, to local African cultures. Confucianism to Chinese cultures. And, and how frequently Christian missionaries have done this same thing, even though Jesus is saying from the beginning, don't do this. You know, Philip's not bringing Jewish culture to this African. He's not trying to get this Jewish African to, to observe Jewish food laws and Jewish cultural traditions. And he's not trying to get him to learn Hebrew so that he can become Jewish in order to become a Christian. But how often we've gotten this wrong when in the name of Jesus, instead of carrying a message about this person of Jesus, we have brought instead aspects of our culture, our European culture, our Western culture, our American culture. And Jesus is saying, no, you only bring Jesus culture. Because I'm transcendent over every culture. You, you take African culture and you drop Jesus into it. And it doesn't become Israeli culture. It becomes African culture with Jesus at the middle of it. It's going to look different than when Europeans do it or when South Americans do it. But the gospel is, is intended to be different about this person, Jesus, who transcends cultures. It, it's helpful sometimes to step outside of our, our Western For those of you who are Western, our Western cultural tradition and our Western kind of secularist context to hear from followers of Jesus from the rest of the world, 
followers of Jesus from the two-thirds world, from Africa, from, from Asia, from the Middle East. Um, the Gambian historian of religion, uh, Lamin Sane, is now professor of history at Yale University. We've got his photo. Um, can we get, the, get that slide? There he is. Uh, in his book, Whose Religion is Christianity, Sane looks at the geographical distribution of world religions. And he observes that the way they tend uh, to function is they remain clustered around their place of origin, and they tend to remain primarily adopted within their native human cultures, Hindus in South Asia, Muslims in the Middle East and North Africa, Buddhists in East Asia. But he observes how different he sees Christianity as an African. He says of Christians, he finds that 25% of Christians are in Central and South America and the Caribbean, 22% are in Africa, 15% are in Asia, and that's the fastest-growing segment. Only 12% of Christians in the world are in North America, and only 20% are in Europe, and he observes that they tend to be the least committed to their Christianity. He argues that Christianity is the only truly global religion at this time. It's the only faith that has been able to transcend every culture, to become enculturated within its forms, within its language, within its styles, and at the same time embrace every culture. Laminsane notes how different Christianity feels to Africans compared to what he experiences, ironically, as the cultural imperialism of Western secularism. He says when Christianity came to Africa, it embraced African culture. He says Africans have always believed in spiritual realities. He writes to be African is to believe that the world is filled with spirits. He says, Africans have always believed that the world is filled with the supernatural, with good spirits, with evil spirits, that the world is a supernatural place. He says, and yet the problem has been superstition. The problem has been fear. What to do about the evil spirits? How do we overcome them? And yet he says, if I send an African off to Harvard or to his own Yale or to Princeton or to Oxford or to Cambridge, they're going to come back European. Because they're going to be told, oh, everything has a scientific explanation. And they're going to, uh, he says, they're going to be saying, oh, people say to them, oh, we love multiculturalism. Wear your African dress and eat your African food, but we're going to destroy your Africanness because we're going to tell you that everything has a scientific explanation. And Laminsane says, Christianity, however, comes to the African and it respects my Africanness. It lets me stay African because it says, yes, there are evil spirits. Yes, there are good spirits. But Jesus has overcome the evil spirits. And through him, you don't have to be afraid of them. In the end, he says, it renews my Africanness. Admittedly, he he adds, as a Christian, I'm not the same as I was as an animist. But, he says, I'm closer to being a true African. He says, Africans recognize that if I become a secularist, I'll really be stepping away from being an African. If I become a Christian, I am not. As an African, Sané experiences our Western secularism as culturally imperialistic. He hears all the time that to be accepted as enlightened in the West, you must become a late modern, individualist, consumerist, Western secularist like us. Otherwise, you are not enlightened. Secularism functions like any other religion. 
uh, in that it's culturally imperialistic. It's just another view of religions. It says that to be African, to be enlightened, you must destroy the heart of African culture, keeping only the trivialities of food and dress. And Christianity, he says, embraces his Africanism and liberates it from fear. And so he says this. He says, Jesus does not mock our respect for the sacred, nor our clamor for an invincible Savior. And so we beat our sacred drums for Jesus until the stars skipped in the sky and and they danced across the horizon. Jesus, he says, is the one who comes to Africa and liberates his Africanness from its fear so that he can be more fully African than ever he would have been. It's a different two-thirds world perspective. Why did the gospel, why did Jesus choose an African? Thank you, that's good. The gospel remains incredibly attractive in Africa. You know, the message of Jesus was, was multi-ethnic and multinational from the very, very beginning. Rodney Stark notes that, that, he notes the global growth of Christianity in, in, and he says this, he says, there are more church-going Christians in sub-Saharan Africa than anywhere else on the earth. The World Christian Encyclopedia records that more Anglican Christians worship in Nigeria in any given week than in all the Episcopal and Anglican churches of Europe and North America combined. Estimates suggest that by 2025, there will be 633 million Christians in Africa. A 2015 study estimates that there are 2,161,000 Christian believers in Africa just from a Muslim background. In choosing a father for the Gentile church, first question, why an African? An African because Jesus' purpose from the beginning was that Christianity would be this multi-ethnic, multinational entity, this family of God from every people and tongue and tribe. It was the plan of Jesus for his church. So great is the heart of Jesus in longing that we would cross barriers of race, of nationality, of background. Why an African? Because the heart of Jesus is to cross those barriers. But why this African? Why this African? Look at who he is. Uh, This is a man who has achieved on one level, he's achieved everything there is to achieve in life. He is the treasurer under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, which if I can translate that, um, uh, Ethiopia, as I mentioned, really meant Nubia or the kingdom of Cush at that time, Um, not modern-day Ethiopia. And, and Candace was the Greek form of, of the African Kandake, uh, which was the generic title for the queen of, of the kingdom, the Kushite kingdom of Meroe, which was directly south of Egypt. It was the largest of the Kushite kingdoms. And likely he was serving as treasurer under uh, Amanitore, who was the most successful of the Meroite Kushite queens. She was a warrior queen. Her royal palace uh, in Sudan today is, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so this guy was the CFO of a large and powerful country with direct access to the warrior queen who ruled it. Uh, he had everything in terms of physical riches. He had wealth. If you want to influence the queen, who are you going to go to? Her most trusted advisor to see if you can oil the wheels, oil the machinery a little bit. He would have been fabulously wealthy. And yet, he's empty. Jerry Oppenheimer's book, Crazy Rich, 
power, scandal, and tragedy inside the Johnson and Johnson dynasty recounts the story of of the family that was made fabulously wealthy by Band-Aids and baby powder. Um, Neither Johnson or Johnson is any relation of mine, just so you know. I've always thought, you know, yeah, money can make you miserable, but I would like to try to prove that wrong. It's just my heart. Um, But, you know, there are endless stories in the Johnson & Johnson family of at least four generations. He goes through them. Extravagances you can't fathom, and yet the worst of family relationships, runaway, out-of-control addictions, brutally raw power. Uh, Every member of the family lived a story of sorrow, of loss, of, of bondage, of addiction, of control, of manipulation, of fear. All of this wealth, all of it, and yet they were rotting in their wealth. They were still empty. When Robert Wood Johnson Jr. died in 1968, he left an immense fortune of hundreds of millions of dollars to the Johnson and John, uh, Johnson and Johnson stock to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. But his last words to one of his nurses before he died, shortly before 6 p.m. on January 30th at the age of 74 were these. He said, I have millions and I would give everything I have if someone could make me well. Probably where this Ethiopian official is. Why this African? He's achieved the world. And yet he's still empty. His wealth can't make him well. He's had the money. He's had the power. He's had the fame. Everybody's afraid of him. Everybody knows him. CFO of an entire country. Still empty. The gods of Nubia weren't helping him out. He wanted an answer. And so he looked to Jerusalem, to the temple of the Lord, thinking the Jews say there is only one God. They claim their God is the creator spirit behind everything, in everything. The one through whom everything was made and who holds everything together. They say this is their God. They say he's the true one. He's been reading from the the prophet Isaiah and he's thinking I'll go to Jerusalem maybe there I'll find an answer maybe there I won't be so empty he's achieved it all but he's empty and it's such a great cost you see there was a cost to gain that kind of wealth and power to gain access to the halls of power to work closely with the queen and her family you had to be a eunuch now Obviously, some of you are going to get the most terrifying question of your life on the ride home. It will come from the back seat of your vehicle. Daddy, what's, what's a eunuch? Let me try to help you. <laughs> to be a eunuch meant that someone injured you so that you could never, ever, ever get married and never, ever, ever have children. They injured you on purpose because they didn't want you to be able to have children. If you can imagine going to grandma and grandpa's house and you see grandpa's there and he's got grandma at his side and and she's baking cookies and you got the kids and the aunts and the uncles and the the, the grandkids and the great-grandkids and all your cousins and everybody's there and there's so much love, a household filled with love and grandpa's right there in the middle of it and on the mantle there are photos of all of the kids and all of the grandkids and all of the great-grandkids and they're all there together and that is what has been stolen when you become a eunuch. It's grandpa alone in the house with no grandma and no aunts and no uncles and no sisters and no brothers and no children and no grandchildren and no great-grandchildren and there is not a single framed photograph on the mantle above the fireplace because he's come from, from nowhere and he's going 
nowhere. He has no family. That's what a eunuch is. And it was something that was done to him on purpose. Why would somebody do that to someone on purpose? So that they're going to be alone their entire life. That's such a cruel thing. It's such an evil thing to do to a human being. Why would you do that to a human being? And some of you understand intuitively. Some of you married women without children who have been in job interviews and you know they're asking kind of general questions and they're fishing around because what they're really wanting to find out is whether or not you plan to start a family so they won't hire you because as a business, it's illegal, as a business decision, employers really like employees who have no other commitments at all where job can be your God, where you are working night and day, where you are never having to take a day off because a kid's got a cold. You're never having to say you've got other priorities and other concerns. It's a business decision. And the same logic that, that causes you to have that awkward interview question that's illegal is the same logic that made employers want eunuchs, injuring them in such a way that they could never have children. You see, a eunuch could be trusted. He wasn't going to raid the treasury because he had no kids or grandkids to take care of. He wasn't going to raid the harem for other reasons. A eunuch could gain incredible influence and power, but at such a cost. And that cost wasn't just the physical injury because in the ancient world, your status and honor as a man was contingent on the size and honor and wealth of your family. You see, we create self-worth in the modern West by what we do, by our accomplishments, our performance, the money we make, the jobs we, we hold down, the titles that we accrue. And yet then significance was tied to your family. That was your honor. And this African high official had no descendants. He had no family. Who can speak of his descendants? There was nothing. Wealth and power, but at the cost of something he would have valued more than all of them. The honor of having descendants. Why an African? Well, because the purpose of Jesus from the beginning was that his church, his family, would be a multi-ethnic and multinational entity. So, so great is the heart of Jesus for, for our crossing those lines of race and culture and background and nationality. And yet, yet, why this African? This African, because with all of his wealth and influence, this man was empty. So why this African at this moment. Notice that he's on his way back from the temple. He's looked at his emptiness. He's thought maybe the God of the Bible has an answer. And so he's traveled a great distance from the kingdom of Nubia to to reach Jerusalem to inquire at the temple of God. Such an ordeal would have would have taken months. It would have cost a, a small fortune. If, if he didn't have permission, it could have lost him his job or his freedom or his life. He sacrificed everything and And yet something's happened. He's on his way back from Jerusalem. What's going on? He's still not happy. Any early Jewish reader would have understood what had happened. Because as an African, he probably could not have accessed even the outermost court of the temple because they had already converted the court of the Gentiles, that outermost court where non-Jews could pray into a marketplace. That's what Jesus cleared Uh, but only briefly. But there was something more because as a eunuch, he couldn't even get close. Because a eunuch, according to Old Testament law, according to Mosaic law, was ceremonially unclean. 
Under Mosaic law, a eunuch was excluded. They were not able to even approach. He had been turned away, empty. His injury had excluded him from the presence of God. And some of you know what it's like to be rejected by religious people because of things over which you have no control at all. He had been publicly shamed, excluded. He's a foreigner. He's in a land where he doesn't look like anyone else. He would stand out in a crowd. People would be joking and mocking him. Look at that African eunuch who thought he could come to the temple. You're not acceptable. You're unclean. You're an abomination. Get away from us. God can't accept you. Not only that, but he's infertile. He will never be able to have children. Every, false, every lead is a false lead. Every hope a false hope. Some of you have faced that kind of devastating loss. And he can never marry because of his injury. He faces this future, live alone, no photographs on his mantle. He has no descendants and therefore no honor. He's ridiculed and derided uh, behind his back. He is a dry tree. He's been sexually altered, a sexual minority. And despite worldly success and political power, This man is empty. So much cruelty, so much brokenness, so much disappointment and sorrow of life is bound up in this one injured man from Nubia. And so this African, he's made this incredibly long journey to inquire of the God of the Jews. Perhaps he can speak and he's been turned away at the temple, sent home alone, ceremonially unclean, excluded from the people of God. All of that effort all of that time, one more dashed hope. Why this African at this time? Jesus directed Philip through an angel and said, go and stand on the road to Egypt. You'll figure it out. And on the road to Egypt, Philip sees this Ethiopian who's, who's on his way back to, to Africa. And a voice of Jesus speaks to Philip and says, go stay with him. Now you imagine this chariot and its entourage is moving. They're horses. It's going at a decent highway speed. And Philip is told by the Holy Spirit, stay with him. That means Philip, this middle class Jewish guy with curls and olive skin, is jogging alongside this chariot while this official is inside reading the scroll of Isaiah. I mean, how crazy this must have been. A middle-class Jew and a wealthy African. Olive complexion, black complexion. The traditions, completely different. You know, Philip's tradition said eunuchs were unclean. He had been altered. Philip's culture and religious traditions, his whole experience would have been screaming, stay away from this guy. And yet, Jesus is saying, get close to this guy. If you have to keep running, run, keep up. Stay with him. And then God tells him to approach. He does. And he's reading. He's reading from a scroll of Isaiah. He's not sure what it means, but the eunuch is reading. He's in the 50s, uh, the chapters. And it probably tells us why he had gone to Jerusalem in the first place. Because it's in Isaiah 56, just three chapters after what he's reading now, that he would have read the promise of God through the prophet Isaiah. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. He had read it in the Bible if he goes to the temple in Jerusalem and seeks after their God. He will have a Yad Vashem, a memorial and a name greater than sons and daughters. And the name that he has will be in the very house of the God of Israel. And yet he had been turned away. And so now he's going back and he's reading in Isaiah again. He's still in the 50s. He's still trying to figure it out. He doesn't understand it. And so Philip asks if he understands what he's reading. He's reading from Isaiah 53 about the Christ who is led like a sheep to the slaughter, a lamb before its shear is silent, and so he too didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Did you notice the detail in this language of the suffering servant of the Christ who would come and suffer for the people of God to save us? Did you notice the detail? It probably just went right over your head. And who can speak of his descendants? He asks, is this talking about Isaiah or is this talking about someone else? And Philip explains to him about how Jesus, who is the Lord of earth and heaven, Jesus, who is that spirit that is at work in all the cosmos, whose goodness and power fill all of nature, how that spirit became incarnate and suffered for us, became one of us so that it could love us and rescue us, and how that Jesus became a eunuch giving up descendants in order that we who are unclean and rejected might be brought in. This is Jesus who dies for his enemies in order to make them his friends. You see, every religion, every religion has a founder who's saying, I'm here to point you on the path to God. And the picture is of all these different paths all leading to God. But Jesus is so different from all of those. Jesus is saying, I'm not pointing you up a path to God because you're never going to reach him. The distance is too great. Human nature is too broken, too damaged, so filled with injustice and cruelty and hate and selfishness. We can never get there. But he says, I'm God. And I've come down the path in order to rescue you. You see, it means that Jesus is either the worst path of all because he's lying or he's the only really true path if he truly is the creator spirit, the logos of God, the wisdom of God incarnate to come and do what we could never do, what we could never reach. He comes to us. Ken Keller says the Christian God's greatest glory is that he's willing to lose his glory. His greatest beauty is that he's willing to lose his beauty. He had to die to take away the justice of God against our own fallenness and brokenness so that we might be embraced by his beauty. And so this sexually altered African CFO who can never get married and never, ever, ever have children, no descendants and no honor, he stops when he finds some water and he says, this is the answer. This is salvation. Jesus became a eunuch for me so that I might have a memorial and a name in the house of God so that I might in my emptiness be filled with his love so that I might be embraced. Here is some water. Baptize me. What does it mean that the very first Gentile convert to Christianity, 
the father of all of you who are Gentile Christians, was a person who was infertile. That the very first Gentile convert looked nothing like the other followers of Jesus. What does it mean that the first Gentile to be baptized was a sexual minority? What does it mean that this Ethiopian eunuch is now the father of every one of us? He is our vanguard of all the millions of possible converts. Jesus picked him to be first. Jesus arranged it so that no one could deny it. This African, this spiritual father of us all, the first Gentile convert to Christianity, and Jesus is saying, this is the one I chose to carry this great honor. This is how I build my team with the injured, with the broken, the despondent, the despised, the weak things of this world. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus who transcends all cultures. Jesus who loves the broken, who has compassion on those who are empty, who has love, affection, and tenderness. It's drawn to those who are the most broken. Gordon MacDonald shares a story about visiting an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting once. And he says, one morning... Kathy, I guessed her age to be 35, joined us for the very first time. And one look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful at 21. But now her face was swollen. Her eyes were red. Her teeth were rotting. Her hair looked unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. She told the group, I've been in five states in the past month. I've slept under bridges on several nights. I've been arrested. Men have attacked me. I've been robbed, and now she's weeping. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore. But between her sobs, I can't stop drinking. She weeps. I can't stop. I can't. Next to Kathy was a rather large woman named Marilyn, sober for more than a dozen years. And Marilyn reached with both arms toward Kathy and pulled her close to her, so close that Kathy's face was pressed to Marilyn's ample breast. I was close enough, he says, to hear Marilyn speak quietly into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're, You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. Hear me? Keep on coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. Donald writes, I was awestruck. The simple words, the affection, the tenderness, how like Jesus. I couldn't avoid the troubling question that morning. Could this have happened in the places of worship where I have worshipped? Could there have been space in a program for a woman like Kathy to tell her story? Would there have been a Marilyn there to respond in that way? See, Jesus is in this place. Jesus has his arm around you. He's pulling you into his chest. He's speaking to you now. Are you listening to Jesus? He's saying, honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. You hear me? Keep on coming. This is Jesus, the one who welcomes eunuchs into his household and gives them the throne of honor. Jesus, the one who throws open his doors for the addicted and for the homeless. Jesus, who embraced a wealthy and powerful African man in all of his spiritual emptiness. It's this Jesus, friends, who can give you a hope and a future. Let's pray.